Well, thank you so much, Nick and Holly, for leading us this morning in our time of worship and preparing our hearts and our minds to hear from the Word of God. And speaking of that, I want to ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 9. We are continuing our study through the book of Revelation in a series that we've called Get Ready. As you're finding your place there, I came across a story this week going all the way back to World War II. It involves one of the Holocaust inventors. His name is Otto Adolf Eichmann. He was a lieutenant colonel in Nazi Germany during World War II. In fact, he was one of the major organizers of the Holocaust. His task, his job, his assignment was facilitating and managing the logistics involved, the mass deportation of the Jews, bringing them to the ghettos and into the extermination camps throughout Nazi-occupied Europe. Eichmann, after the war was over, when Germany was defeated, was captured by U.S. forces, but later was able to escape from the detention camp, and he remained a fugitive from 1945 all the way to 1960 when the Israeli intelligence captured him in Argentina. They brought him back to Israel, and he stood trial for the 15 crimes brought against him. On June 1st, 1962... Otto Adolf Eichmann was hanged for his crimes. In 1993, Chuck Colson was given a speech, and he shared a story from Eichmann's trial. Listen to what Chuck Colson said. He said, and I quote, There was a Jewish man who stepped in and watched part of Eichmann's trial. He burst into tears. Someone next to him said, Your anger must be unbearable. To which he said, No, it isn't my anger. The longer I sit here, the more I realize I have a heart like his. I have a heart like his. You know, anybody that studies history, anybody that knows anything about history, especially the history of Germany, it's hard to believe that any person like that would argue with the fact that Eichmann and his Nazi comrades were anything but depraved. Six million or so Jew, Jewish men, Jewish women, Jewish children were tortured and butchered by these depraved human beings. The dictionary defines depravity for us. It says that it's marked by corruption or evil. Depravity is perversion. It is crookedness. And the actions of the Nazis demonstrated their depravity demonstrated their crookedness, their perversion. But it's important that we understand this is an internal disease. We see the things from the outside. We see what they did, but they did those things because on the inside of who they were, they were depraved. You see, depravity is not detected necessarily from the inside. We don't see the roots there. We see the ramifications of the depravity. In fact, most people don't even look depraved. Most people have a good ability. They, have, they do a masterful job of disguising depravity in their life, but never doubt that underneath, in the deep recesses of their heart, there is a disease eating away and polluting the thoughts and the emotions and the actions of every single person who's ever lived. Depravity. You see, depravity, according to what we see in the Bible, is the heart condition of man. Sin has corrupted man. Sin has corrupted and perverted and made crooked and made evil every aspect of who man is and his nature. 
And therefore, in his sin, man is totally depraved, totally perverted, totally crooked. Every facet of his being is in rebellion against God. Therefore, the mantra of the the man's life or the woman's life, the, the sinner's life is I will or my will versus God's will. It's rebellion against God. He desires to be, to be free and out from under the hand of God and the leadership of God and the rule of God. I like how uh, Randy Alcorn in his novel Safely Home speaks to this issue. He says, and I quote, an obedient man is free when in prison. A disobedient man is in prison when free. That's what we have going on here in this text. See, the depravity of man strives to be free from the rule of God. We're going to see that as we move through the the ninth chapter of the book of Revelation. This depravity is on full display during the eschaton, during this end time. And as we've seen already in these first eight chapters, as we've been working through the book of Revelation, the time of evil's reign is ending as God's judgment is being unleashed on the sinful as well as on the rebellious. Their time is coming to an end. Last Sunday as we were there in chapter 8, we saw that the beginning of the end has come. There's the first four trumpets have been sounded. The judgments that they are unleashing have been brought onto the earth. In the midst of all of this, the depravity of man is on full display as repentance is rejected. Look with me, Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Here's what John has to say as he reiterates what he saw in this vision in heaven. John says in verse 1, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10 
thousand. I heard, John says, their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They were breastplates, or they wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And the fire and the smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Before we go further and before we begin to break down this passage and learn what John is seeking to tell us, I want to share with you three truths just real quick that I believe will help us understand and better comprehend the vision that John is receiving. So number one, rebellion plunged both demons and humans into depravity. As we see here in Revelation 9, depravity on display, we need to know that it was rebellion against God that plunged both the demonic world as well as the human world into depravity. You see, it was pride that led Satan to desire to be like God and to dethrone God. It was pride that that caused him, the created being, to look at the creator and seek to replace him. Likewise, it was pride there in the garden that caused Adam to believe the lies of the serpent, which said, you know better than God. Rebellion is the thing that plunged everything into depravity. Truth number two, the rule of God is in control of every event. We will see that as we walk through this chapter, that the rule of God is fully in control of what's taking place. God sovereignly directs the events of history, and he uses them to fulfill his redemptive and judicial plan. There's a third truth that I think we need to know, and that is repentance is the desired response from God's judgment. That's what God is desiring to see in the lives of the people. You see, God is not spiteful. God is not mean. Sometimes we may accuse God. People will accuse God of of being spiteful or vengeful. They look at him and they think he's just that grumpy old grandfather who's up in the heavens that just wants to hit people in the head. That is not the picture of God that the Bible gives us. He is not spiteful. He is not mean. He is just, though, and he is vengeful. But Scripture teaches us that his judgment is geared toward repentance. It's geared toward Repentance, it's, in other words, it's meant to lead people to take heed and to turn in faith to him and be redeemed. So these three truths, as we understand them, will help, them, help us better understand what's going on in this chapter. Now, if you remember, in chapter 8, it ended with a large bird, an eagle or a vulture, because that word can be translated both ways, flying overhead, and it's issuing three woes. Three woes that are to come. Whereas the first four trumpets are, were judgments brought against nature, these final three will be brought directly upon mankind. 
And so let's look here at the first woe that we see in the first 12 verses. This first war, or this first woe, is a horde of demonic locusts that emerges from the abyss and spreads over the land to torment those not marked with the seal of God upon their foreheads. And so what John tells us is that at the sounding of this fifth trumpet, a star falls from heaven, and this star, which is an angel, has been given a divine commission to open the shaft that goes down to the abyss or the bottomless pit. This place of bondage is interesting. It's often spoke of in the New Testament. In fact, it's referred to as the place of the dead in Romans chapter 10, verse 7. It's referred to as the place that's a prison for evil spirits in Luke chapter 8, 2 Peter chapter 2, and Jude 6. It's also what we see in Revelation chapter 11, as well as in chapter 17. It's the place that the beast is going to emerge from. And then, and thankfully, in Revelation chapter 20, we see that it's going to be the place that the enemy, Satan himself, will be incarcerated for the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus while he's here on earth. So John tells us that when the shaft is opened, a thick cloud of smoke bellows out from the great furnace, and out from this dense smoke come these locust-like creatures. They're given power of the power of scorpions, and they resembled horses that were prepared for battle. These scorpion centaurs, as one commentator describes them, they wear crowns and they have long hair and they fly. This is literally the most bizarre creature that's presented to us in the apocalypse. As Mount says in his commentary, the total impact is one of unnatural and awesome cruelty. As we read this, we need to understand that God is allowing these demons to do what demons do and to unleash cruelty and pain and suffering upon unrepentant, unregenerate, sinful man. These evil spirits have been imprisoned in the abyss. That's what we see here. The angel comes down, he has the key, he unopens it, and they come out of the abyss. See, in their depravity, in their hatred for God, they long, they would love the opportunity to lash out at God and hurt God, but we, he, they can't do that. We know that they can't do that. They know that they can't do that. So the best thing that they can do is to hurt those made in the image of God. And as they come out of the abyss, that is exactly what they desire to do. They long to hurt. They long to torment mankind. We know this because they come out prepared for war. They come out prepared for battle, to rage against humanity. And so the angel instructs them, he instructs these locust-like creatures, which normally you would think they would be eating up the vegetation and devastating the landside, but he says, you should not touch anything green. You should only touch those who do not have the seal of God upon their forehead. They're given authority, a limited authority. He says that they have authority for five months to inflict pain and suffering through their sting, but they are not allowed to kill anyone. However, the sting that they're going to unleash on the people is so brutal, so painful, so torturous that people will long for death, but death will flee from them. Scorpion centaurs are led out by Apollyon. 
Literally, that is a title that means the destroyer. See, in all of this, John reveals to us that these demonic forces, they are organized, they are powerful, they are terrifying, and they are filled with rage and contempt for their followers. Their followers, the ones who have rejected God and worshipped idols and the things of this world, which in essence is worshipping the demons themselves, they are longing to torture the ones who follow them. As soon as God grants them permission, as soon as they have the opportunity, they torture and they maim all who have rejected God and have worshipped them. The first woe is past, verse 12 tells us. It's now time for the second. The second woe is a demonic calvary. John tells us it numbers 200 million strong. 200 million Riders are mounted on fire-breathing steeds, and they sweep over the land, killing a third of earth's inhabitants. In John's description here of this event, four angels are released from bondage. Four demons who've been placed there strategically in bondage for such a time as this. They've been kept for this moment in history, according to verse 15. They are apparently leaders of this great horde of riders, which John numbers... uh, Twice 10,000 times 10,000. In other words, two myriads of myriads. You calculate that, and it comes 200 million strong. 200 million horses and riders fitted and ready for war. This is a cavalry like the world has never seen. And as they go to war, the interesting thing about this is it's not the rider, it's the horses who are doing the killing. John tells us that from, their, from these horses, they have lion-like heads, and from their heads come forth fire and smoke and sulfur. And, and this trio of plagues engulfs their prey in a demonic inferno. Horses in this cavalry also have tails like serpents. In other words, the tip of their tails have the head of a snake, and while they are burning some, they're biting and inflicting others. So the fifth and the sixth trumpets and their judgments, as we see here, are swift and they are severe. Most likely every human being has been bitten or stung by the the, the scorpion-like creatures, those scorpion centaurs, and every single person who's not a, a follower of Jesus Christ at this time has longed for death, desired death, perhaps even tried to kill themselves, but they cannot die even though the pain is so severe they want to. They long to die. And then through the sixth trumpet, these fire-breathing monsters come up from the underworld and they kill a third of the people who do not have the seal of God upon them. These two trumpets, along with the first four combined, what we see in this is that these six trumpets have left the world in ruins and left the world in despair. At this point in the story, in this point, at this point in the chronology of history, the reader here would expect to hear the people who are alive at this time repenting of sin and crying out for grace and for mercy and for deliverance. But unfortunately, according to verse 20, that is not what we will see. That is not what the, the, the reply and the, the heart cry of humanity will be. Instead, it will be further rejection, further rebellion, further depravity. You see, human depravity is powerful. Human depravity is pervasive. 
The people at this time will continue to chase after idols. They will continue to chase and worship demons. They will continue to engage in sin and immorality and reject God all the way to their eternal punishment. This surprising response reveals three things about depravity that I believe we need to understand this morning. Let me share these three things with you quickly. Number one, we see here that man's affection for worldly things over God is fueled by the demonic. It's fueled by the demonic. Now, anyone who's uh, my age, I'll be 42 next month and, uh, and older, you probably remember that old catchphrase, the devil made me do it. It was popular in the 70s, popular in the 80s. Don't really hear it so much now. But that catchphrase was popularized by the Flip Wilson show back in the early 19. 70s. And so many people would just kind of say, you know, if they got caught in something, well, the devil made me do it. It kind of became a joke. Uh, people would use it all the time and just flippantly say that, that, that the bad things in their life or the wrong things that they were doing, they would just say, you know, the devil made me do it. That's somewhat true, even though clearly the Bible teaches us that we have a, a will, a free will to make choices and decisions. So it's not so much that the devil made me do it. Here's the thing. The devil and his demons have influenced humanity to do what they do when they reject the things of God. So demons here, what we see, tempt and seduce man to chase after the things of this world and to reject God. This seduction, this temptation is nothing new. It began all the way back there in the Garden of Eden when that serpent crawled up or walked up next to Eve and Adam was there. And they began to hear him question the things of God and point that this tree really is beneficial. They were pointing to something, leading to something, influencing the first man and the first woman. We see the same thing in the wilderness with Jesus. When he's there fasting for 40 days, he's being tempted by Satan himself, being seduced, being tempted. We see it on every level in Scripture. We see it in every level and aspect of our own lives. Satan and his fallen angels are in the business of promoting sin (coughs) and self. They prop them up. They highlight and feature all the benefits of pleasures. They, they talk them up. They make sin sound and seem like the most attractive and desirable thing in the world. I mean, it's the most pleasurable, desirous things in the world. But what exactly is sin? What exactly is sin? Sin is the rejection of God's authority. Sin is the choice to not believe God's world. Isn't that what Adam did there in the garden? When the devil said, has God really said? And and Adam there, or Satan said that, when Adam heard that, he questioned God's word and failed to believe it. So the Bible teaches us that sin uses and abuses the sinner. And any one of us, every one of us, I should say, If we think through our life and the times when we've chosen to reject God's word and believe a lie, we know what sin has done to us. It uses us and it abuses us. You see, sin promises much, but delivers very little. It leaves the sinner empty and yet full of guilt and shame and fear. I'm reminded of what Randy Alcorn in his book, The Lord Falcon's Letters, it's a book very similar to the Screwtape Letters where it's written from a, a demon's perspective, encouraging and, and tutoring a, a younger protege in 
demonic activity. And, and in this part of the, the teaching, as one demon teaches another teaching, or another demon, he, he's talking about the desire that they have to inflict pain and to lead people into grosser sin and what all that means. And so listen to this statement. I think it'll speak to us and help us understand what demons are really seeking to do. He says, our goal is to produce an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing return. Sin looks so good. The demons of hell make it look so good, so attractive, and yet it's always a diminishing return on what they promise. See, you and I need to know that every time we're tempted to sin against God, every time we're tempted to reject God's rule and authority over our choices, that decision is influenced by the demons of hell. Sure, it's influenced by our sin, it's influenced by our world, but what is behind all of that? The demonic. It's influenced by demons. You, see, you might hear that and you think, oh, I don't know, I don't know if I, I don't really know if I believe that. I mean, demons, that sounds a little third world. That sounds a little mythology or like mythology. That sounds like a fairy tale. No, that's what the word of God says. But I understand where you're coming from. I understand we live in America. I understand we're Western. I understand we are sophisticated and science-oriented. And so it may be a challenge for us to believe in demons. But the Bible is explicitly clear. There are nothing but good and evil in this world. Those who are good are those who follow the Lord. Those who are bad are those who follow Satan. Now, they're not equals, but they are both present. There is a Jesus and there is a Satan. There are angels in heaven and there are demons who follow the leadership of Satan himself. They are at war with image bearers of God. There's a second thing that we need to see here and that is this. The entire desire of every demon is to torture and kill all who are made in the image of God. You see, one of the saddest aspects of these judgments is that depraved humanity is so ensnared and so deceived, they fail to recognize and to realize this truth. And still, because of that, they run in and rush into sin recklessly. See, the unregenerate are shown to be controlled by their depravity. Rather than being controlled by the Lord and His Word, they're controlled by sin and Self, The very demons who are tempting and seducing humanity into idol worship and immorality are the very ones who inflict suffering and death on them as soon as they have the opportunity. The ones who've rejected God and worship of God are worshiping Satan. And as soon as the demons of hell are unleashed and have an opportunity, they go and they, they, they torment and put into uh, just, they, they try to kill their worshipers. It ought to open our eyes to this reality. Satan and his fallen angels, they don't care anything about us. They hate humans. They hate humans because they're made in the image of God. They don't care anything about our welfare. You see, that serpent crawled up next to Eve and Adam and acted like he really cared about their, their, their future, really cared about their welfare. Did God really say, he, he's holding back on you was kind of sort of the idea there. He didn't care about Adam. He didn't care about Eve. He didn't care about the humanity who would come after them. He cared about himself, and he cared about his mission to destroy God and those who were made in his image. The demons of hell do not care about you. They hate you. See, Jesus, when Satan was tempting him in the wilderness, Satan wasn't caring 
about Jesus' future. He wasn't caring about his ministry. He was seeking to destroy. And that's what Satan always does. That's what the demons always do. John 10.10 tells us that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And so what does this mean for us? It means this, circumstances and seductions that lead to an affair are not gifts from demons looking for your emotional, your relational, or even your sexual health. They are a way to entrap you, to ensnare you, and to destroy you. Let us have eyes that can see that. The same can be said of alcohol or drug abuse or anything that this world has to offer, anything that we might conjure up for ourselves. Those things, if it's contrary to the Word of God, are there as tools that the enemy is using to do nothing else but to destroy your life, your family, your testimony, your future, anything that's good in your life. The demons of hell have one goal, your destruction. There's a third thing I want us to see here. That is, the depravity of man always leads to the embracing of idols and the rejection of God. Verse 20 and 21, is, this is on full display. See, these horrible events of the trumpet judgments prove to the nations that God is supreme. God, is, God has wrecked nature. God has wrecked economies. God has wrecked religion. God has wrecked humanity. And, and so there's no other thing to be deducted other than that God is supreme. God is sovereign. These judgments prove that the demonic forces of hell also hate humanity as God has unleashed them and allowed them to do what they want to do. They've tormented and brought suffering and pain and death to humanity. And yet these judgments also prove the graciousness and the mercy of God. You see, God is graciously offering men and women and children an opportunity, perhaps a final opportunity, to turn from their sin and to turn in faith and repentance to Him. He could have just wiped out humanity. He could, with one failed stroke, brought judgment upon everything. But instead, he does it in stages. Why? It's because God's wanting to graciously bring people to an understanding that he is there to forgive and to redeem. Rebellion and the war within humanity leads nothing but to futileness and their fatality. And yet man cannot win in all of this. Even the demons of hell are subject to him. So in the face of all the evidence, unregenerate man still chooses rebellion over repentance. John says the rest of mankind who were not killed, they did not repent. And instead they continued to engage in their sin. It's just like Genesis 6-5 said of the sinful men in that day. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what is in the heart of a depraved man or woman. Every facet of his being is corrupted by sin. And even though there's a natural desire to worship, that sinful desire within them leads them to reject the worship of God and to worship idols and to worship self. The depravity of humanity and the depravity of the demonic is on display in this chapter. It's real. The demons of hell are committed and ruthlessly working to steal and to kill and to destroy the lives of men. To wreck marriages, to to wreck homes, to wreck anything that would bring honor and glory to Jesus. They are working to keep you in bondage to your sin. And if permitted, they would sadistically torture each and every one of us to death. At the same time, the depravity of the unregenerate is on display. 
Sin blinds sinners from seeing their error. It prevents them from recognizing truth and the source of what their souls long after. They, they, they long to, to fill the hole within them that is there because they were made in the image of God and made by God and for God. And so rather than seeking God, they try to fill that emptiness in their heart with everything this world has to offer. Every human being is in that condition. Every human being is just like, just as depraved as Otto Adolf Eichmann, one of the founders of the Holocaust movement. This is a depressing demoralizing chapter if you just look at it from the standpoint of sin. So where is the hope in this? Hope is found in God's final opportunity for repentance and faith. God gives man an opportunity to run from sin and to run to Jesus. His measured judgments are graces given to open the hearts and the minds of sinful people to their rebellion. He offers here an opportunity to repent of sin and to turn to Jesus in faith. The unregenerate living during these trumpet judgments, though, will refuse this opportunity, refuse this gift. What a tragedy that is. Here's something that's just as tragic. As we read this account of something that is to come into the future, we know it's a reality. We know it's a reality then. We also know it's a reality today. And as we read this, as we study this, as we hear about those who will hear and to see the the opportunity that God is giving them, they will reject that. And yet we at the same time, so many times, will do the same thing. Rather than turning from our sin and turning to Christ, we continue to hold on to our sin, even as we read and learn of judgment that is coming. In this time of pandemic, in this time of the virus that swept across our country and across the globe, <clears throat> excuse me, you've got to ask the question, what is all this for? I don't know the full answer to that question, but here's something I do know. I do know that God, more than anything, would love for all of us during this time of uncertainty and in this time of economic downturn, in this time of just seeing death after death after death being portrayed on TV, when we learn, see all this, when we hear all this, he would love for us to recognize our finiteness. He would love for us to look up to him and to trust him and to put our faith in him. He would love for us to, to look inwardly and see our brokenness and to see our sinfulness and to see our rebellion and turn to him. He would love for us because of the love and the grace that he gives us to take and be his hands, his feet in this world. So as we read of those in the future who will reject Christ, even in the face of incomparable judgment, many of us today will continue to do the same thing. So this morning, on this Sunday morning, where are you at in your life? As you hear these judgments, what what is God speaking to you? Are you refusing to repent of sin in the midst of what God is revealing to you this morning. Are you refusing to allow the circumstances of this pandemic to lead your heart closer to God? What is it that God's wanting to open your eyes toward and to open your eyes to? Well, in all this, as we always share every Sunday, there's good news, there's bad news, and there's great news. The good news is God loves us. He loves those who are created in His image. He loves us. In fact, uh, in, in some form or fashion, you've got to just make the argument that even in Revelation 9, the love of God is there. 
as he graciously gives people another opportunity. God loves you. He created you. He designed you to perfectly relate to him. The bad news is that you're a sinner. The bad news is that we're all depraved. The bad news is that our sin separates us from God. The bad news is that we're under the just judgment of a holy God. The bad news is that there's hell awaiting all of us. And we deserve that. That's the bad news. We are sinners. And the wages of sin is death. But the great news is this. The best news is this. The free gift of eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. See, the great news is that God the Son came, took your sin and my sin upon Himself, and paid to pay the penalty for our sin. Died to pay the penalty for our sin. Today, He offers us an opportunity to turn from sin and self, to turn to Jesus in repentance and in faith. Open our eyes and to see how much God loves us and how he's demonstrated that love through the cross, through the tomb, and through the resurrection. Like I said last week, as we look here at the beginning of the end, today needs to be the beginning of the end for our sin. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, today is the day to do that. Today is the day to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. This past week on April 24th, I celebrated 23 years as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I remember that day. I remember it was a Thursday. I remember the, the, the time period of when I gave my life to Jesus. I remember where I was. Why? Because that was an important day for me. That was the day I moved from death to life. And I pray that would be true of you in your life as well. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, today is the day. If you would like to know more about that, in just a moment, we're going to have something on the screen, uh, a way for you to reach out and to say, I need help in this. I want to talk with someone about what it means to put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps, perhaps this morning you're a believer and, and, and whatever is going on in your life, for some reason you're walking in, a, in, a, in an area of distance. You're walking in a guilty distance from the Lord. Today's the day to come home. Today's the day to open your eyes and to see that, that maybe some of the things you're living for, some of the things you've allowed to be priorities in your life shouldn't be priorities. Because of the Word of God, you want to turn from that. You want to start over again, I guess. I want to encourage you in just a moment as you see that slide, you respond as well. You know, in all of this, it's so simple. All we got to do is say, Lord Jesus, I've sinned. Lame, list that sin. Lord Jesus, help me to... Uh, to experience forgiveness. Forgive me, Messi, and give me grace. Give me mercy. As I, I trust in you. I put my faith in you. It's simple. It's just a prayer. It's just a prayer. A cry to God, and he will hear, he will forgive, and he will heal your life. These words this morning are strong. These words this morning are full of grace and full of life. If we will heed them, if we will apply them, and if we will take them and run to Jesus, the depravity that marks our life can be redeemed and our lives can be made new and restored to everything God has for us. I pray that would be true of you and your life there as well as in your home. Thank you for being with us this morning. I want to pray for you. I want to ask God's blessing upon you and, and ask that he would continue to speak to you through his word as we've looked at it this morning. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will bless us. Thank you for this word. God, even in its judgment, it is encouraging. And we received that this morning. I pray that you'd open our eyes to the reality of sin, the danger of sin, the destruction of sin. Lord, also open our eyes to your grace, your mercy, and your love. 
God, all that's been demonstrated through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for those who need a relationship with Jesus today, that man, that woman, that child. Today, God, give them the the ability to say yes to Jesus and no to sin. God, I pray for Christians who need encouragement to walk, continue to walk out of sin and walk in greater sanctification. Lord, encourage them, strengthen them, empower them today to do just that. Lord, bless us as your people. Help us to be a blessing to others as we share the gospel this week and encourage them, especially in this season that we're living. Help us to be those who take hope to the hopeless. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us. My Prayer is that God will bless you this week. God will continue to encourage you this week. And I want to also just really strongly appeal to you to to reach out to us. God's speaking into your life this morning. You send us a message, and we'll follow up with you. We're praying for you. We love you, and we pray God's best for you. Thank you.